0: Hello fabulous people and welcome back. Yes, it's that time again, time for another steaming pile of diet culture bullshit. I'm so excited to bring you this week's conversation, but there's just a few admin things to take care of before we get going. So first of all, it's just a big heartfelt thank you to everyone who's listening to this podcast and sending me all of the messages of love and rage and support for everything that we're trying to do here at All Fired Up and in Untrapped. Thank you so much for listening. I just absolutely adore releasing this podcast, even though I am kind of aware that recently this year it's been a bit hectic with me getting the podcast out on time for which i very much apologize because this is a complete labor of love i do it all by myself and i guess life is very busy for me with a full caseload uh two children a uh just life i guess um and trying to you know topple diet culture through doing things like stopping the fast track trial so I am going to make a concerted effort to get two of these episodes out per month. But if I'm not perfect, I apologize deeply. But know that I'm not giving up. It will always come out, even if it's a little bit late. And in order for you not to miss it, if I am a bit unpredictable, please make sure that you are subscribed to the All Fighter Up podcast so you don't miss the episodes when they pop out. And of course, if you do truly love it and you love me and you want to see this message getting out further and further... Take a moment out of your busy life to leave a really nice five-star rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast. or get your podcast from. Thank you again so, so, so much. I just absolutely adore this community. And if there is something that's really getting up your nose and you want to hear me rant about it with some fabulous guests, let me know. Send me an email to louise at untrapped.com.au and I will promise to get really fired up about it. Secondly, have you got your free ebook, Everything You've Been Told About Weight Loss Is Bullshit? If not, please get one right away. This ebook was written by me and the amazing Fiona Willer, anti-diet dietitian from Health Not Diets and Unpacking Weight Science. And in this book, we are busting the top 10 O myths that are floating around in diet culture. So we're talking about things like what is the real relationship between weight and health? Uh, does being big I mean I'm going to die ten years earlier? Will losing weight make me healthy, just like a thin person? Uh, and how thin, how healthy are thin people anyway? All of these myths are busted with a whole heap of beautiful uh, scientific studies. We take a deep dive into what the weight science really is saying. And this ebook is a fabulous resource. I strongly recommend you get it, read it for yourself, send it to friends give it to your health providers and medical professionals because there is just so much bullshit that's flying around about weight loss and the the truth is really, really interesting uh, and very far from what we're told all the time. So you can download this ebook, like I said, for free. You can get it from the website, untrapped.com.au and it will just pop up and you can download it or you can go through to my Instagram account and grab a copy there from the link that's in the bio. What's the Instagram account? I hear you asked. Well, it's actually not all fired up. The Instagram account is untrapped underscore au. So head to untrapped underscore au and grab a copy there. I'm not sure if you guys realize this, but I also produce a fortnightly newsletter where I rant in a, in written form about various aspects of diet culture and tear apart scientific studies and, and sort of talk about things that are relevant. So if you'd like to be on that list, you can subscribe at untrapped.com.au and just click on get the newsletter and you can join up. And of course, we can't forget that the wonderful All Fired Up podcast is brought to you by the even more incredible Untrap. Online masterclass, which was designed by me and amazing health professionals from the anti-diet space, and it's a very comprehensive program which helps people smash down the walls of diet prison, liberate their bodies, never diet again, stop feeling ashamed, connect with their bodies, and just enjoy the hell out of being alive and on this planet. It's pretty cool, this course, and I'm really blessed to know everyone who helped me produce it and recently i just ran the very first untrapped retreat so i had the pleasure of going away for an entire week with people who have done or are doing the untrapped online program and i took eight amazing anti-diet people with me as guides and my god we just had the best time and just the most wonderful experience So it was a real um, moment of reflection for me that, you know, 18 months ago I started this course called Untrapped. I didn't know how it was going to run. It's gone really well in an online forum, but to bring it to life and to see everyone actually meet each other in real life and bond as a group in real life was just incredible because you know what, it's very hard for us to get recovery in diet culture because diet culture just sucks the life out of us you know as individuals it's very hard to stay strong I guess and to stay connected to the anti-diet message but just the power involved in being able to spend a few days with other people who are like-minded and to deepen and develop those friendships and relationships it just it's galvanizing and it's it's life affirming and it's just I'm so fired up now it's ridiculous so I guess that's a very long-winded way of saying if you're feeling alone in this standing against the diet culture you don't need to be alone anymore come and join us in Untrapped you'll get a fabulous course you'll get an amazing community and you get all these kinds of opportunities like We're going to run more retreats and we're going to do all kinds of stuff. So join us. Look at uh, untrapped.com.au. Check us out. So this brings us finally to the topic of this week's amazing conversation. I am so excited to bring you my special guest. Her name is Virginia Sol Smith. She has just written a really awesome book called The Eating Instinct and I came across her via a very awesome blog that she wrote about it was called well actually and it's the story of how thin white men are responsible for rebranding dieting and making it the wellness culture that tortures us today so it was the just the coolest blog that i've read in a long time so i know i knew that i really needed to have this conversation with virginia and when i got her book and read her book there was just this whole other level of awesomeness to her story so I'm not going to tell you too much about it, but this conversation takes amazing twists and turns and I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed having it with Virginia. So without any more hesitation, I welcome you to this week's conversation with me and Virginia Sol Smith. So Virginia, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm psyched to be here. So what's getting you all fired up?
1: Well, I think we, It boils down to thin white men who want to tell the rest of us what to do with our bodies and how big or small we need to be.
0: (laughs) Well, (laughs) what a fantastic topic because I found your article that you'd written for Bitch Media and um, just the title, of course, blew me away because it's called well, actually, <laughs> the thin white men who rebranded dieting as wellness, and I just knew when I read that article that I had to talk to you about this <laughs> <laughs> It's just I, I was punching the air as I was reading it, and going, "Yes. Yes, yes. Yes. I love that. Because <sighs> we do have a lot of mansplainers in this space currently, but what was interesting about your article is you kind of you're tracing back the timeline of the whole wellness. Saturation that we have right now back to the thin white men. Yeah, you know, it's really,
1: I think we're quick to blame a lot of the wellness culture stuff on influencers, and that's often, you know, thin, often thin white women, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow and, and folks like that marketing their programs. And they certainly, you know, they are part of this conversation too. And we, you know, I'm not defending them, you know, <laughs> uh, we could take them to task as well. But when you look at where they're getting their. Quote unquote data and information and sort of ideology around food, it does come from this trajectory of thin white men thinking that they really know how everybody should eat. And this goes back, you know, if we look at kind of 80s diet culture, if we look at, you know, Dr. Atkins, Dr. Agatson, who invented South Beach, you know, there's been Mm. skinny white guys telling us how to eat in a pretty big way for decades and decades. And it particularly, I think, you know, kind of dovetails with when women entered the workforce in a big way in the 1970s. That's when you really see the rise of modern diet culture. Because, you know, if you can keep women focused on our bodies is focused on trying to stay as small as possible you know that saps a lot of energy when we could be out dominating the world so it definitely starts there That's but then the share
0: so interesting it's hard to smash the patriarchy if you're starving
1: yeah if you're hungry <laughs> it's hard to you know compete in a lot of ways if you're skipping lunch and you know yeah i mean this is this is really fundamental uh, and you know naomi wolf wrote that in the beauty myths in the 90s that dieting is the most potent political sedative in women's history because yeah it keeps us it keeps us focused um, in a really narrow way instead of participating in the bigger world
0: absolutely and you can <laughs> and you can trace back even you know to the to the very beginning of like People like Kellogg, another thin white guy, or you know, he, or the, the the white guy who lost weight and wrote a book about it. It has been happening. It is driven by these. In white men, which is just sort of mind blowing. Yeah, then, even
1: like Jenny Craig, she launched her business with her husband Sid, and he was really kind of the driver. I mean, she was the face of it. Like I think that often is what happens. They find a thin woman to make to be kind of the face of the business, but behind the scenes, it's very much driven by this white male ideology. And it's guys thinking that they've figured out this quote best way to eat and sort of taking credit for their thinness without recognizing that, you know, they were essentially born on third base. Like they have bodies that are programmed to be this size other people have bodies programmed to be different sizes theirs happened to fit the definition of what we consider ideal in this world right now so but it's not really through anything they did it's just biology and genetics that set them up this way
0: oh i love that born on third base right and <laughs> <laughs> taking full credit for it
1: yeah exactly <laughs> Kind of white man in a lot of ways in this world. Um, yeah, as you
0: talk, I'm like, yeah, that applies to a lot of things, doesn't it? That you yeah, know, the it really bootstrapping do. mentality that you know, if you have mm-hmm. success, that's definitely down to you. and right. Yeah, adversity and hardship, oppression, none of that really actually applies. I'm talking to you, Jordan Peterson. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. And so then what happens in the mid-2000s that's really interesting is the thin white guys got a lot more subtle and they also got more overtly political. So you have going from, you know, the diets that were big in the 80s and 90s and even into the early 2000s were very like straight up capital D diets, right? Like we knew Weight Watchers as diets right there in the name. You know what it is. But once you have people like Michael Pollan and then Mark Bittman, who's a, you know, major American food writer, you have these guys joining the conversation around food, they were talking about food as a political and an environmental agenda in the need to make a safer food supply, you know, increase organic farming. And they have this whole other mission, which to be mm. honest, I don't actually disagree with. I mean, I do think we need to have a more sustainable food supply. I do think that eating plant-based foods is like useful and fundamentally good thing to do. Mm. The problem is, They, again, turn it into a kind of gospel and dogma around eating, and they think that they can go into communities that don't have access to these types of foods, that have, frankly, other problems that are bigger than whether or not they're eating their vegetables every day, and say, no, 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 this is what you need to be doing. You need to be eating like me, and this is going to solve our, quote, obesity crisis, and this is going to fix food insecurity and hunger and all these issues. And so they're just really overreached. And I think it was trying to figure out how to make this kind of environmental and really scientific sort of message, how to make that something you could market to the general public. And you know, for better or for worse, most people don't. It's hard to connect with caring about organic farmers. But if we say, oh, but it's about your weight, well now you've got everyone's attention. So yeah. That's so- really yeah, that's really what laid the groundwork for where we are now with diet culture, where it's all about wellness and clean eating and whole foods and all of that. And, you know, the danger of it is we've really lost the emphasis on any environmental agenda, but we've still attached this morality to these food choices and this idea that you're somehow more pure and eating in this more worthy way than if you're eating, quote, fake foods. And so that's where then it starts to get really elitist, really classist, often really racist. And in addition to all the misogyny that's been there all along.
0: Oh, absolutely. So Mark Bittman is the vegan before six guy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I um. Yeah. Michael Pollan is, I'm deeply ashamed to say this, but when I I started uh, doing this, becoming interested in the whole non-diet approach and really wanted to help clients not diet and, you know, I am very ashamed to admit that Michael Pollan's book was for sale in our practice <laughs> in early on. Before I realised what you're saying, before I realised that this is actually really elitist and really white and uh, classist, and like who am I to tell people that non-processed foods are better than processed foods? And it just ignores like the reality of so many people's lives. But he was so convincing, and. Oh, I- yeah. He was
1: and you know, I don't think you should apologize because, you know, to be honest, I had his book on my shelf and I thought, you know, I was as a journalist working especially for women's magazines, but I was writing a lot about environmental health issues at the time. Like we all drunk the Michael Pollan Kool-Aid and <laughs> thought kind of the second coming. And the other thing that I do want to give him credit for, um, as much as I obviously take him to task, but you know, one useful thing he did do in the pushback against fake foods was he did take on the diet foods of the day, the kind of low fat, fat fat-free, light, you know, all those sorts of like diet foods that were not satisfying to people to eat a lot of the time, that were not going to, you know, leave you particularly full after a meal. And so there was this kind of more processed version of dieting that was popular at the time that he was really calling out. And that was useful. The problem is he then replaced it with another diet as opposed to saying, wait, actually, if you enjoy Diet Coke, like, that's fine. <laughs> 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 you can do it in an anxiety way if you want. And you know, like, you, you know what your body needs and you can make your own choices around this. So yeah, so that's where, you know, I think a lot of us were appreciative at the time because he was kind of offering this liberation from, quote, dieting with a capital D but then unfortunately the message went in a different direction.
0: Yeah, he just he just changed hats. He didn't dismantle the whole structure. Right. And right. I think when he put out his second book which is called Food Rules, I think. Mm-hmm. That's when I broke up with him because I realized <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't I can't do that because this is not supposed to be about rules, but like you said, that's exactly what he did. He just established a new diet empire that was really gaslighty to people because underneath it all is this desire for thinness or worship of thinness. Like it's not questioned that thin is good. And and he even talks about the uh, quote unquote obesity epidemic. And, you know, part of the reason to do this is to make people thin again, which is just a weird thought when you consider it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, food yeah. is really like a women's magazine diet article, but it's written by a man, so um, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. I don't really understand that book at all because it's just it's just diet advice. It's pretty.
0: It's pretty lovely. shit. Yeah.
1: They're
0: <laughs> not, yeah, they're not just American because there's there's Jamie Oliver in in the UK who who does this. You know, emphasis on eating a certain way as a way to solve the apparent crisis of larger children and and he's very judgy I think even though I mean and again like I've got Jamie Oliver's cookbooks because this was so exciting at the time to kind of you know enjoy cooking again and stuff like that but just this increased it just seems to increase as he goes through his career this emphasis on the reason to eat like this fundamentally is to solve the problem of people's bodies he really throws in on
1: people, on kids and lunches, which really makes me crazy because he's really shaming children then for choices that kids don't actually have that much control over what goes into their lunchbox. Like <laughs> making you yeah. school dinners is just, you know, that's just stigmatizing children. So that's
0: particularly evil in my book. <laughs> yeah, not cool. Not cool. Yeah. And then here in Australia, like probably like the king of the humans when it comes to thin white men telling everyone what to do is this guy called Paleo Pete. I don't know if (laughs) he's... He is... uh, Oh, God, how do you describe him? So you know the show MasterChef? Yeah, so he was one of the judge chefs on MasterChef and he used to own a pizza restaurant and be really normal. And then he discovered Paleo and, you know, lost three kilos or something like that. And just became a absolute, I can't even like zealot comes to word, (laughs) comes to mind about pushing the paleo diet. And he's done really misleading documentaries about diet and health. Like he's, he's gone really extreme. Like I'm talking like anti-vax type extreme. Oh man. Yeah. But the, the amount of moralizing about food and the the paleo is the absolute way to eat for our environment or for our health which really means thinness and to cure kind of all kinds of ills if that's what he's doing and he's really he's just everywhere it seems at the moment
1: yeah, that is all really disturbing. The connecting it to the anti-vax stuff is really creepy to me because it it really shows how this is, you know, not rooted in any kind of science, despite what they want to argue is that, oh, well, all this research, quote unquote, research says this and that. And it's, you know, it's just mind blowing the way they're either incorrectly interpreting data or, you know, hinging stuff on really flimsy studies that don't actually, you know, it doesn't really hold up. And it's it's dangerous because people, you know, we're all really vulnerable to these messages. And you know, you want to trust people, and you want to—you know—it's—it's it's just really—it's really irresponsible to spread that kind of information.
0: Yeah, I think in your article, there's this quote which I loved when you're talking about Gwyneth Palcho, and you're talking about her and other female wellness influencers saying that they've been simultaneously inspiring and terrorizing their mostly female audiences, and—and <laughs> and I think that's what paleo Pete is doing and and all of them really that they're you know inspiring a little bit inspiring but mostly terrifying because you're terrified because you think you're doing the wrong thing and you're about to ruin someone's like your child's health or right. your, your own health if if you know you brush your teeth with fluoride in the water <laughs> um,
1: right and it's constantly telling people you don't know what your body needs you don't don't trust your hunger don't trust your appetite you know don't trust any signals your body's giving you like you need to outsource all of that to this guru or this expert who knows better and you know that we do know very clearly from research and this is you know really the sort of underpinning of my book that eating instinct is humans, you know, as long as they're born relatively healthy, like humans know when we're hungry and when we're full. And we know that we're supposed to provide comfort. Like this is, this babies would never survive the first year of life if we didn't have these instincts in place. It's essential to our survival. And so to constantly be undermining people's trust in their bodies, it's incorrect. And it's just so dangerous because we actually do know a lot more than we think we do about food.
0: I know. Yeah. We're not, we're not, Need a guru. We just, yeah, we need to be left the hell alone, but that's really hard in diet culture. So I'm halfway through your book, which is The Eating Instinct, and it is just fabulous. Thank you for writing it. Thank you. (laughs) Because you had an interesting story because your history is you used to be a ghostwriter for celebrity lifestyle books and you used to cover um, wellness for women's magazines. So that's like right in the thick of it, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah. So I've been a journalist since 2003 and I, yes, started my career in women's magazines. And then as a freelancer, you know, when you're a freelancer and you need to pay the bills, uh, ghostwriting somebody's lifestyle book is a pretty efficient way to do that. So uh, that became a sort of niche of mine, but it was constantly frustrating because at the same time, you know, I've always identified as a feminist. I have people in my life who've struggled with eating disorders. (laughs) I was really worried about the messages we were giving women and girls around food that was you know from my first job at 17 magazine we were getting letters every day from girls really struggling with this stuff and then we'd go do an article on how to get your bikini body for the summer and I was like what are we doing I mean this is obviously terrible but it was hard at that point you know in the early 2000s this stuff was very entrenched and it was hard to you know, I'd pitch editors and say, let's do an article about health at every size. Let's talk about intuitive eating. And it would always kind of end up being a diety article at the end. You know, it was hard to keep it away from that. And so I was increasingly frustrated with all of that and feeling sort of at loose ends, of like, well, how am I going to write about this stuff with, you know, like, there's not a market for it. Because then on the flip side, of course, women's media is the only place at that point, And even still today, this is kind of true. You know, it's hard to f- get mainstream media to even want to cover women's issues with food you know like they think of that as a women's magazine story but then the women magazine stories want they want to do the diety version of it so it was really frustrating Mm -hmm. um You know, being kind of caught in this in this space between these markets, but I still, you know, very much as we talked about, I was still looking for. You know, I just kept thinking, well, if we find the right diet, like there's got to be a diet that's not bad for people. You know, doesn't make people feel bad about their bodies and doesn't make you feel deprived. Like we just have to find a plan that makes sense, and that's you know that's what we thought Michael Pollan was offering us. That's what we thought the wellness movement was going to be. So I was really on that bandwagon. uh, You know, in sort of 2010, 2012 as that stuff was all coming up and thinking okay well we're getting closer this must be the this must be it but then in 2013 when my daughter was born that is when everything changed for me and this is you know where the story takes a little bit of a weird left turn but my daughter violet was born with a rare congenital heart condition and when she was a month old She almost died and, you know, fortunately the doctor saved her life and everything's going well, but the upshot was she stopped eating completely as a one-month-old baby and she was dependent on a feeding tube for the better part of two years and that's when I just realized, hang on, I've been trying to do everything right. I mean, I was obsessive with my prenatal nutrition and my yoga and all of that. And, (laughs) you know, I had charged into breastfeeding, like reading all the books and talking to lactation consultants. And I'm going to feed this child so perfectly. Mm -hmm. And now she can't eat. And nobody can tell me why. And nobody can tell me how to fix it. And that's when I really realized like there are no experts, there are no plans here. There's just me and this kid and we've got to figure this out. And so we've got to figure out how to trust ourselves and trust food. So that was, yeah, it was being pushed completely outside the paradigm that I was able to start looking back and seeing, yeah, it's not about finding the right plan. It's about figuring out our own relationship with this stuff.
0: Oh gosh, like reading that part of your book, I just had goosebumps through the whole chapter. (laughs) Uh, Like how difficult that would have been. Just to see, like I think somewhere in there, you say something like, "It's such a basic instinct to eat and to feed, and to see, like your little baby, terrified of that, and completely uh, at sea with all of that." It really brings home like the kind of ridiculousness of the wellness and diet industry, because <laughs> fundamentally, it's okay for us to eat and wow. having a relaxed relationship with food and to see like you really must have got that idea of just nourishment and how food really is nourishment and safety and nothing's wrong with it
1: Right. It's when I realized that food has, the eating, the active eating has to provide comfort. Like we have to derive comfort from food because that's, it wasn't just about nutrition, you know? It was, we could keep her perfectly, like nutrition-wise, the feeding tube covers all your bases. You know, you can just manipulate what you're putting in the tube and, you know, feed them some, you know, textbook perfect nutrition without, like, we, you know, we could feed everyone that way. Yeah. But, incredibly you know I mean and I'm grateful to the tube it saved her life it was so important in you know supporting us through this process but you know it's really hard to live with and it's not you know it's hard to find the same intimacy the same connection that you can have with a baby when you're feeding them holding them in your arms versus syringing something into a tube I mean it's a totally different experience Mm. and you know, Violet stopped eating when eating stopped feeling safe when she, because she was so sick and because of the trauma she was undergoing in the hospital, she felt like it was compromising her ability to breathe. And so she was, you know, protecting that even more primal need. Mm -hmm. But the only way we got her to eat again, it wasn't by convincing her that eating was good for her or that it was like, you (laughs) know, important from a nutrition perspective, it was by making food safe and comforting and pleasurable. And so when we lose that, that's when eating is really hard for people. And that's, you know, that's true whether you're a tiny baby or you're a grown-up. I mean, this, is, this yeah. is fundamental. And, you know, this is what diet culture robs from us. They, it, you know, all the diet plans, you know, they sort of claim, they give lip service to the idea that, you know, oh, the food's going to taste so good and you're going to love eating this way. But by right. putting all those restrictions in place and all those rules around it, they're getting you completely disconnected from the true pleasure you can get out of eating. But it's not, we have this idea that eating for, like we talk about comfort eating or eating emotionally as if these are bad things that are failing. But actually, babies eat emotionally. Like, this is what we're programmed to do. Babies are born and they, you know, eating raises all their feel-good hormones. Feeding a baby raises raises the parents' feel-good hormones. Like, this is a blissful experience when it's going well. And that's how we know to keep doing it. That's how we keep alive.
0: Yeah. Yeah, because when we when we breastfeed, we release oxytocin, which is the attachment and love and safety hormone.
1: Yep. When you breastfeed or you bottle feed a baby. I mean, they see dad they record those in dad's bottle feeding too. So Oh really? That's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just the act of of knowing you're nourishing this little creature who you love and who now loves you. And you know, you're falling in love with your baby through the process of eating. And so that's, you know, when we think we can't eat for comfort or we can't have emotions while we eat, like that's just so backwards because it doesn't work if you take that part of that away. I mean, that is that is just as essential as nutrition.
0: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. That's a, that's a really important point that you're making that we look at comfort food, comfort eating as if it's a bad thing when actually it's, as you've seen with Vi, it's really fundamental. And yeah, it's the whole ball game. Yeah. It just doesn't, it doesn't work for kids and it doesn't work for adults.
1: If you, if eating doesn't feel comforting to you, then it's really difficult to feel like you have a good
0: relationship with food. Yeah. Yeah.
1: who wants to do something all the time that feels unsafe? It's you know
0: who wants to white knuckle eating? But that's right. what's become really normalized in diet culture or sorry, wellness culture. <laughs>
1: right. right. We gotta kind of, it's
0: an act that we have to get right and right just means nutritionally and all of this other amazing stuff is is ignored or actually actively undermined and dismissed. Mm-hmm. And even in the um in the world, I guess, of non-diet stuff there is still like in some, I'm not saying in all places, but in some places there's still a a kind of veneer or like a message that comes across that if you do the intuitive eating stuff, you'll let go of comfort eating and you'll stop comfort eating. But what you're saying is that that should never stop. That needs to actually be nourished and enhanced.
1: Right. I mean, that's, yeah, I think that when people sort of talk about intuitive eating in that way, what they're really doing is co-opting intuitive eating to sell a diet. So, they're getting yeah. away from, yeah, I mean, to me, and, you know, again, the research, all the reporting I did for the book really bore this out. The ability to feel comfort in food is part of, you know, that is intuitive. That's very natural. And so you can't fight, you know, when you fight that, you're, you're not intuitively eating. Mm. But I think, you know, we have this, you know, I'm not going to say that people don't eat to numb emotions. You know, we often, especially when we're struggling with disordered eating, there's choosing foods that we call comfort foods and eating to sort of comfort yourself, but really to disconnect, yeah. to really numb out from the, the big feelings that are hard to feel, right? And so yeah. that's what we mixed up, is like, we call that comfort eating, but that's not really comfort eating, that's eating to escape emotions, that's eating to... Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's,
0: it's, it's more it's, like it's, distress, eating, distress eating, really. Right, right, yeah. you're eating,
1: yes, in that point you're eating in a place of distress and you're, you know, you're looking for any life raft you can, and this feels like the way that's not what i'm arguing for but you can't get away from that pattern unless you have full permission to eat you know that because really at the heart of that is restriction you've been restricting and restricting and you can't take it anymore and you end up in that binge place of eating to numb out and eating eating to Overload in that sense. And so that's a totally different experience. But again, it all comes back to you have to find food comforting. You have to feel safe around food so that you can give yourself full full permission to eat Mm. in the way your body needs to be fed. And then once you're doing that, it's much, you know, there's a self regulation that kicks in. You don't feel the need to eat every brownie in the pan just because it's there. We see this Mm -hmm. now with my daughter. You know, she'll get very excited to see brownies. Brownies are delicious, but she'll eat one or two or two and a half and, you know, happily walk away because she's had what feels satisfying to her. She feels nourished by it. She doesn't need yeah. to sort of keep going past that point. That's pretty radical. And that's, that's something that a lot of adults really struggle with.
0: Yeah. And I think a lot of people come to like the non-diet uh, approach or, you know, a non-diet practitioner because they well and truly scared off the gurus, which is an awesome thing. <laughs> but the primary thing they're looking for is I've got to stop binge eating or I've got to stop emotional eating. I like so it's a, this is what I have to focus on getting rid of first. And I try, like, I, like you're, you've been talking about, focus on that foundation first, like the foundation of safe feeding first, rather than focusing on the first step being eliminating that binge eating sort of right. stuff, yeah. which is a lovely. It's a really important message. I'm glad we're talking about it.
1: Yeah, no, it's so crucial because otherwise you are just kind of, as you said, white knuckling your way through eating, you know, always so fearful of going to this dark place with it that, you know, if you can really, and it, you know, I think for a lot of us, as we start to give ourselves this permission, it does mean eating more than there is a period of needing to refeed yourself and needing to give yourself all these things you've been trying to deprive. And that could look like overeating or binging as you're kind of moving through that space. But then you get to a more... Balanced place, but it's yeah. Mm-hmm. You only get there if you have that full permission.
0: Yeah, you got to go through it, and there's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with going, going through it. Isn't pathological or abnormal? Right. Yeah. Right. It's, <laughs> it's
1: totally. You know, you're healing from all this trauma, and that's gonna that takes some time. <laughs> it's not going to be straightforward yeah. always. It's gonna be yeah. messy.
0: it just it just highlights how terrified of eating we are in diet culture. How terrified we are of things like appetite or needing more because the, the restriction mindset is so dominant that as women particularly, we should always want less.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I see that all the time in the way we talk about food, you know, something that as I was researching the book, I became increasingly aware of is how often we apologize for eating. You know, oh, I can't believe I'm taking the second cookie. You know, office parties are like a landmine of this. <laughs> like whenever they bring in cake for somebody's birthday and everybody's like trying to take the smallest possible <laughs> Like there's just this idea that we don't really have permission to eat in a public way or even eat at all. And a lot of people in the book talked about struggling with that. And I, I think that's yeah.
0: I think that's
1: we really need to fight against because again that's you know that's the social conditioning that's this patriarchal way of trying to control us around food that we've really internalized and so we have to recognize like it's a very radical thing to start to let go of that and to start to say like nope I deserve to have my hunger I deserve to take up space in my body and have my body take up space in the world like Mm
0: -hmm. you're not just
1: fighting for yourself when you're doing that I mean it is your own fight and it's a brutal fight but you're also fighting for you know for all of Who have who have been kind of you know made smaller than we need to be in the sense?
0: Yeah, we're fighting for the legacy. We're fighting to stop this kind of yeah intergenerational shrinkage. Yes, <laughs> yes definitely. <laughs> so, what um, inspired you to write the book? If that's not a completely stereotypical question?
1: <laughs> no, not at all. So, you know, we went through this whole experience with Violet, and you know, the weird thing about being a writer, and you know already contributing to my daughter's future therapy, as I'm sure she'll have her own feelings about this. But the um, you know, <laughs> thing about being a writer is whenever you're coping with a really intense experience, part of your brain is like writing about it, you know, and I wrote, yeah. you know, I journaled a lot about the experiences we were going through her surgeries and dealing with, you know, figuring out how to make her feel safe around food. And it was kind of writing, writing, writing constantly, but I didn't know what it was leading to. It was just cathartic, really. Mm. Not and none of that's in the book, um, but just, you know, how I process what I'm dealing with is research and writing. And so then as we were dealing with, okay, we've got this baby who's terrified of eating. How are we going to help her out? I started to realize there was a bigger story to be told just in the sense of how pediatric feeding problems are approached. You know, pediatric feeding disorders in the United States anyway are treated Quite distinctly, they're not treated at eating disorder centers. They're mostly treated in children's hospitals and they're treated with this very methodical form of therapy where kids are presented with bites of food and if they take their bite they get rewarded for eating the food and it's this really ritualistic like you take your bite you get your prize your prize might be a toy it might be blowing bubbles it might be watching some screen time like they just over Mm -hmm. and over condition the kids to push through whatever fear they're having whatever reasons they're not eating just push through it in order to get your prize
0: yeah it's very much behavior therapy
1: yes yeah Completely behavioral model. And, you know, as I started to learn about these different therapy programs and people were saying, well, you're going to put Violet in one of them, I was horrified because I thought I have this little girl she's gonna grow up in this culture that's constantly telling her she doesn't know what to do with her body and she doesn't, you know, she shouldn't listen to her body. That's happening to girls in so many ways. And so I'm now as with a baby supposed to try to program her to fight through. I mean, obviously it wasn't, you know, we needed the feeding tube to feed her because she wasn't able to eat, but her reasons for not eating were logical. You know, there was this trauma response. It was this trying to protect herself. Mm. And so we had to figure out a way to obviously not let her starve, because that was, you know, what her instincts were telling her, but also honor what she had gone through. And that that was a logical response at the time, you know, that she would stop eating because eating didn't feel safe. I want my kids to stop doing anything that doesn't feel safe with their bodies. Like that's, that's pretty fundamental to um, navigating a lot of life. And so I knew I didn't want to do this therapy approach that would just be kind of trying to push her through all of that. I wanted to heal the trauma. And that led me to doing all this other research and finding folks who are taking what's known as the child-led model, where they really work more with healing the underlying issues and using the feeding tube to support nutrition in the meantime, and then slowly like following the child's cues and readiness and letting them guide you back to eating. Yeah. It's a long process. I'm not going to lie. It's, you know, the more clinical ritual reward feeding approach works more quickly because it's this kind of boot camp model. But I just felt like, well, I'm looking at dieting versus intuitive eating here. You know, I mean, I want the intuitive eating approach for my kid. I don't want my kid on this regimented plan that we can't even feed her at the family dinner table because we have to sit there offering prizes for every bite over and over. Wow. So, you know, that's when I started, you know, as we went through the process of helping her do it in this more child-led, responsive, feeding way, you know, there were a lot of hurdles in that. It's not straightforward. You're constantly kind of navigating where the child is and what they're ready to do and how they're ready to proceed. And so I knew that was something worth writing about because there was a lot there that would extrapolate to, you know, more moderate, picky eating situations and the types of struggles parents have around food. And then I started just thinking about all these different ways that people are struggling with food. And I realized there was like at its core, what we were all struggling with was getting back to that instinctive. We know when we're hungry and we know when we're full, we know food is supposed to provide comfort. It's that loss of those instincts that creates so many of the different types of disorders and feeding struggles we have in this world. So Mm -hmm. that's, you know, I started by writing more intensively about Violet's journey and learning to eat again And then I started wanting to collect, you know, I started hearing from other people about their stories, some very related, some not so related, and realized there was this bigger book that I wanted to do.
0: Yeah, it's just, it's absolutely fascinating. And you've nailed it. Like it's deep down, although the the stories are all different. The loss, the essential loss is that trust and that connection with your own built-in instincts just because it looks so easy on, you know, when you just say it like that, but it just gets so immensely complex.
1: Right. I mean, it's a brutal disconnection process. And the thing is most of us spend years disconnecting, you know, Violet in many ways is quite lucky because she was sort of brutally, but quickly disconnected from her eating instincts during this early trauma. And then by the age of two, pretty fully reconnected to them. And so, you know, that's Really, you know, felt very slow when we were living it, and very scary. And you know, again, wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. But other people spend thirty or forty years getting to this place. <laughs> you know, if you're struggling with a lifetime of dieting and eating disorders. You know, or the folks in the book, I talk to people with avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, who are people who, it doesn't start so much as a fear of fat for them, but it's a real fear of food. Different textures and flavors are so disorienting to them. That starts in early childhood, and they're struggling with that all the way into adulthood because it's such a poorly understood condition with few treatment options at this point. Or, you know, there's another chapter about People uh, living in poverty, and how you know, how do you honor your hunger instincts when you literally don't have enough food? So you spend yeah. most of your time trying to condition you and your children out of listening to those hunger instincts because you can't do anything about them. And then what does that do if you do get to a place of more stability and you can feed yourself, but you've spent all this time trying to ignore your hunger be out of desperation? So what mm-hmm. does that do to your relationship with food? So yeah, I think it's it's happening in so many different ways. And like I said, for a lot of folks, it's a much more complicated journey than even what we went through. You know, Violet is really a metaphor in the book for, you know, just the sort of short version of what most people are spending a lifetime trying to work out.
0: She's an incredible, she brought an incredible highlight to your life of what this is all about and helped you solidify what kind of parent you want to be to her and like how how awesome is that because she will be solidly grounded in this and because of your experience you won't let her kind of stray away from it. Um, I mean I, I hope I can only hope you know. It's, oh you'll try yeah. As with all
1: parenting things there's a lot of fuck involved but um No, I'm grateful. I mean, she's taught me so much because she always, even as a little itty baby, was so clear on what she needed (laughs) and (laughs) everything got simpler when we figured out how to listen to that. And she's still at five, someone who is very clear at all times on her needs. And I think that's an awesome quality in a person. Yeah. Um, And, you know, it's made, now I have a second daughter who's a totally typical eater, took to breastfeeding, no problem, you know, moved on to solids, no problem, eats everything, just a very, you know, has a very easygoing relationship with food. And I think, you know, again, I'm grateful because I can see certain aspects of that, that if I hadn't had the experience I'd had with Violet, I would be really neurotic about. But because of where we've been, I'm able to be, you know, take in stride things that are pretty typical for little kids it's normal that you know around the age of one their appetite decreases a little they're a little less interested in food because they're not doing the big growth spurt they do as a baby and you know a lot of parents panic and think oh my gosh my baby ate everything and now she's such a picky eater and I'm like oh no this is typical okay we can roll with this you know oh today you love blueberries tomorrow you hate blueberries yep it. This yeah, it. this is feeding kids, but yeah. we often pathologize a lot of that because we do.
0: Pregnant. Yeah, um, and it's yeah. that whole idea of like appetite or what people eat needs to be the same every day, and there, right. there can't be variation in hunger. Right, and we also get really shaky around growth spurts and what that means. Like, right, we predominantly. get predominantly. Yeah. What's going to happen? Are they going to get fat? Yeah. Right. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, we're alarmed when our children aren't eating enough and then we're alarmed when they suddenly are really hungry. I mean, we're really, we're really freaked out by our kids'
0: appetites in both directions. And Yeah. yeah, We're not good with rolling with stuff, like you said. Yeah. So, so for people listening, like who would you say, like for people who are trying to help their kids connect, what would you say are good resources to point them towards?
1: Well, the feeding philosophy that really underpins what I've just been talking about in terms of what we did with Violet and is really the model of, you know, how I approach feeding with both my girls now is called the Division of Responsibility in Feeding. And it was developed by a therapist named Ellen Satter. Ellen is E-L-L-Y-N and Satter is Mm S-A-T-T-E-R. And she's been writing about food and kids for decades. I mean, she's been around a long time, but I think her message has kind of started to really reach the mainstream in an exciting way. And so she pioneered this concept of the division of responsibility, which says that feeding is always a relationship. And both parents and children, or caregivers and children, have very distinct roles. And as long as you respect each other's roles, it will feeding works. And so parents are in <laughs> charge of we're in charge of what food gets offered, you know. A, throughout the course of the day what's for breakfast lunch and dinner we're in charge of when meals happen keeping it on a schedule giving kids time to get hungry in between snacks and dinner and that kind of thing and where meals happen you know ideally at a table but whatever your sort of situation allows and then that's that's really it, though. Once we bring the food to the table and we say, okay, this is a mealtime, our child is totally in charge of how much they eat and even whether or not they eat certain foods that were offered. So we don't sit there and say, okay, well, you've had enough pasta. Now you need to eat your broccoli. We yeah. let them sort of move around the plate and eat. You know, in some days, they're going to eat nothing but carbohydrates. and other days, they're going to eat nothing but, you know, in my house, it's always blueberries for some reason. <laughs> and then their food intake doesn't look balanced meal to meal, but over the course of a week, it gets, you know, they hit everything you need. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, so interesting.
1: Was, yeah. A really, really helpful model for us. And again, it's hard to put into practice. There's a lot of ins and outs to it. And, you know, for us, it was this huge leap of faith. Cause it's like, okay, I'm supposed to trust my child to eat, but she's demonstrated she won't eat. So mm. how do I yeah. do
0: that must've been
1: so hard. Yeah, we needed the feeding tube, you know, we would give her the opportunity to eat at meals and then, you know, feed with the feeding tube what she didn't take by mouth. So we needed that safety net, you know, but we worked because because our situation was so extreme that we couldn't days and days without eating. But with other kids, you can trust that, you know what, kids aren't always going to eat dinner and that's okay. Like they're, even if they go to bed a little bit hungry, they're going to wake up and make up for it tomorrow. They're not yeah. going to, you know, die in the night from starvation. And then on the <laughs> flip side, you know, you can trust that if you don't make a fuss about it, your child who's eating three servings of everything is going to know when she's full. And the next day she's probably going to eat a little less because she was really hungry today and growing and, you know, yeah. out. And I do really see that now with both my girls, the self-regulating ability that's so, you know, yeah. like that's what I want them to keep intact. I don't really care whether or not they're eating their vegetables or whether or not any particular food choices are much less interesting to me than, like, are they regulating themselves what they need? Yeah. Because if they have that skill, they can navigate eating, you know, for yeah they can fall in love with kale when they're 25 if they want I don't care
0: (laughs) yeah it's a totally different kind of pride isn't it it's like yeah because my kids are intuitive you know self-directed eaters which just changes all the time so yeah
1: yeah Yeah, you don't get hung up on the specifics of what's on the plate in the same way
0: the idea and that's what pisses me off about the lunchbox police too because no yeah there's yeah That we're not doing our kids' lunchboxes as a competition with other mums. Right, we just just need to honour, like, follow what's happening for the child and anticipate those needs and provide it. Yeah,
1: and and it's so you know there's so much shaming when you know you have kids who you know, especially eating in school. I mean, we certainly saw, you know, as Violet started kindergarten, first she was terrified to buy lunch in the cafeteria because I think, you know, buying school dinner was so much to navigate there, like getting in line and talking to people and managing a tray. you know, that's like a lot of skills for a little kid. And so I was packing her lunches and I was packing the same thing for lunch week after week in the beginning because it wasn't about, ooh, can I get her to eat some exotic vegetable at lunch? It was, oh, she's at school. That's a tiring, stressful time. And I want lunch to be a safe yeah. spot of the day for her. You know, we want that to be comforting. So, okay, mm-hmm. we had turkey sandwiches, you know, three weeks in a row, but she's, you know, has yeah. the that. energy that's fine. And then over time again, she started saying, okay, I'm bored of turkey. I want some mm-hmm. else." And, you know, I think when you allow food to be comforting in that way and really embrace that aspect of it, it always sorts itself out. <laughs> Nobody wants to <laughs> eat the same one food until they die. So no, you, no. Can, trust, you can trust kids to kind of move through those phases yeah
0: but allowing kids to run with a food love affair as well is just fine
1: it's yeah,
0: not yeah no problem yeah. recently there was this really awful news article that came out here comparing the lunch boxes of kids in poorer neighborhoods with the lunch boxes of kids in rich neighborhoods oh my gosh uh, oh and literally the article is about look how much better the rich kids are eating with- <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm pretty sure the article was written by a thin white guy. <laughs>
1: yeah, I would bet good money on that.
0: All yeah,
1: other pieces, you know, if you're on a tight budget, you can't afford to expose your kid to this thing 47 times and have them throw it away 46 times. Like you, you <laughs> no. know, you need to go with what's gonna work. That's it is a privilege to be able to do that kind of thing and to vary up the vegetable intake over the course of the week. Like that is such a place of privilege, and if that works for you mm. and your family. I'm very happy for you. But if it doesn't, you are not doing anything wrong. Yeah. Kids need, they need the predictable comfort foods. And a lot of times, ta- you know, we shame processed mm-hmm. foods so much. I can tell you, my daughter would not have learned to be an oral eater without baby food pouches. They were so <laughs> helpful. And there's so much shame around baby food pouches. I don't know if you guys have that in Australia, but in the States, it's like this huge, oh, baby food pouches. I got a press release today trying to blame them on, like, rising cancer rates. I mean, it's... Oh, my God. It's insane. And I can tell you, you know, for a little kid who was just getting comfortable with eating, just getting comfortable with, you know, she was behind on a lot of the motor skills of eating because she hadn't been eating for so long. So, like, just moving food around her mouth was challenging for, you know, at one and two as she was figuring this out. Being able to give her this really predictable, like, this blue pouch is always going to taste like Mm -hmm. the thing you have trusted it to be... And we're going to be able to meet your caloric intake in this very definitive way. Like, we know you're getting, you know, we know how much we can drop the feeding tube because we can see very clearly, you know, what you're getting. Like, it was really useful and gave her a lot of comfort. And I had this beautiful moment. I remember when she was about 18 months or so. This is a baby who, you know, I hadn't been able to breastfeed. I'd never been able to bottle feed. And she was suddenly snuggled in my arms eating her yogurt pouch. And I was I'm having this moment. I'm having this, you know, this beautiful moment with my daughter. I don't care that how much, how many grams of sugar this thing has. I don't care what food dyes they put in it. This is finally letting me feed my baby. This is amazing.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. We just really need to lose this constant focus on, thanks, Michael Pollan. how unprocessed the food is, you know, like, you know, you don't have the perfect lunchbox unless it's just like literally dirt in there with a bit of lettuce on the top. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. uh, and you
1: know i'm not saying that like on a broader government level i'm all for sort of improving standards on these foods like i think it's great mm-hmm. when mcdonald's adds apples to the happy meals like i think it's you know like there's certainly room for improving this on a societal level mm. where it's, you know where access to quote whole foods is they're more affordable they're more accessible all of that's wonderful we just have to get away from the idea that we're shaming the individuals for eating these foods and you know we need to approach it with like how can we understand the role this food is playing in your life and really honor that and recognize mm-hmm. that, that is a good thing that you have figured out this way to feed your family that works for you and recognize the tenacity and ingenuity that all parents are exercising when we figure out these solutions because feeding kids is not easy It's really no. hard. find something that works for your situation you've put a lot of thought and time into that and I think we need to
0: honor you know the work parents are doing oh so much yeah we don't yeah well that's that's the problem with diet culture isn't it we don't give ourselves enough credit or our intuition or our wisdom or our just like doing the best we can because we're always outsourcing it to the thin white guys or the wellness gurus
1: Right. And we outsource the expertise. We outsource the knowledge, but we don't outsource the guilt. When the diet fails, we blame ourselves. And so that's, you know, that's what we need to let go of is, okay, if you followed somebody's plan and it hasn't worked, it's not your fault. <laughs> you know, you don't need to be following their plan.
0: Yeah. Dump the plan. Dump the plan. Go back inside to your own yeah. wisdom. This has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. i would love talking to you. This is great. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so um, I'll put your book definitely up on the show notes. I can't, I'm really looking forward to finishing it off, and just thank you so much for putting this message out there because it's a really unique perspective. Um, oh, like, yeah. yeah, it's just it's just wonderful, and yeah, let's not worship thin white guys anymore. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're done with them.
0: <laughs> we can yeah. figure out our own way. <laughs>
1: yeah, and now we can
0: see them coming.
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure. All
0: right, thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me, Louise.
0: Wow. Thank you so much, Virginia, for just a fascinating conversation about all things thin white men, wellness, family feeding. It's just an amazing conversation. I just really... That conversation has just really resonated and stuck with me for days and days and days. So thank you. If you would like to find out more about Virginia and everything that she's doing, you can visit her website at virginiasoulsmith.com. So that's a uh, Smith, as in S-O-L-E-S-M-I-T-H, Soulsmith.com. And I really encourage you to go and grab a copy of her book, The Eating Instinct, food culture, body image, and guilt in America. It's just so fascinating to hear everybody's different stories. And, you know, it does not just apply to America. It absolutely applies to stuff that's happening here in Australia and doubtless around the world as well. Virginia also has a podcast. And yes, I'm going to spruik another podcast on my podcast because it's awesome. Her podcast is called Comfort Food. And she's presenting it with a co-host and it, she's talking about the joys and the dramas are trying to feed families so how awesome is that so get on to that and have a listen if that floats your boat so this brings us to the end of another episode of the wonderful all fired up podcast I am going to be back in a couple of weeks and the next one is going to be just absolutely dripping with rage and I can't wait to bring it to you But in the meantime, I want you all to take very good care of yourselves. Remember to rate and review and subscribe if you haven't already. And don't forget the ebook and don't forget the newsletter and don't forget to join us at Untrapped if you're struggling and you need some assistance. So I can't wait to talk with everybody again in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, trust no one, think critically, push back against diet culture. Untrap from the crap.